Good morning to most. Good afternoon to others and good evening to our viewing audience across the pond. I am your host, Jason Miles. I'm back from my 31-hour journey up north to the Bay Area. I hope you guys enjoyed Ryan Grimm, Deep State Cuba, Mean Jean Bajlan, Thursday for our show. Do you condemn Hamas? You guys enjoyed that show from the viewing numbers. It looks like you guys had a lot to say about that show. Uh, as always, if you're new to the channel, please hit like, please hit subscribe. For you guys that watch all the time and don't hit subscribe, hit subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. It's a very passive gesture. It goes a long way in growing the channel. As you know, this is the Saturday free show. Hey, there is no bonus champagne room. So everyone gets access to the TIR VIP where Toussaint will be joining us later, joining me. I don't know if the guys can stay. It is Saturday. Most people actually have lives. And in the case of the people on the screen, they'll be sharing the screen with me. They have wives. So it's the holiday season for these chaps. I'm sure they have things to do for those of us that don't have anyone in their life <laughs> or that hate their families and children. <laughs> Just kidding. But seriously, we're going to have some fun. Toussaint and I have found some videos. We've curated a experience for you that I think you'll enjoy. Uh, we'd like to send a big thank you to all the subscribers on all the platforms. And of course, our patrons, without you, we couldn't do this. If you like what you see, if you have the means and feel so inclined and would like to support, be a part of the TIR family, I'm a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to all the champagne rooms past and present. You can be in the live virtual audience for the Mau Mau Hour and join us for our movie nights. As simple as that. Let me bring, oh my goodness, I was going to bring in, my, oh there he is. Let me bring in my guest co-host today. He is the sometimes why in the TIR family, and he's the sometimes why because he wants to keep his job. Please welcome Paul Prescott. Hey. What's going on, Paul? How are you? I do like to keep my job. I understand. I understand. And we can't get mad at you for that because sometimes we go a little off the rails here on this show. Um, you experienced some champagne room shenanigans with us the other day. I did. <laughs> and I'm sure you're like, I'm glad this is behind a paywall. I have a reputation to uphold. Um, we're go I, I thought of you uh, the moment our guest today hit me up about this piece that he wrote. I said, you know who would be a great co-host with me on this? Robin T.G. Kelly. Oh, shit. I'm just kidding. I didn't think that at all. Basically um, the same person. I mean, <laughs> you like look real quick and you had like 15 years. 15 years? Yeah. 15, DG, 15. DG Kelly's way older than you. I know, but. Oh, he just. Cause he's I was older. trying to be nice. Oh, yeah. well, he's an older man. It's okay. <laughs> he's He's living just fine. Yeah, he is. <laughs> it's not. He is not worried about anything we say. 
Look at look at those Negroes on that side of town. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm kind of being Philadelphia in Mexico. Yeah, exactly. They'll never live in LA with me. <laughs> I'm safe from Omar Johnson. Hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine Umar Johnson trying to get through D.G. Kelly's gated entrance? And I kind of think he does have a British accent, like, in his house. I kind of think, if I had to bet, I would, I'd be willing to risk some money on that. <laughs> I believe in my soul that he has some amazing, quote-unquote, African art in his house. Someone yeah. says, meanie Jason. Hey, I'm not being mean. Just... I believe that DG Kelly has really nice furniture. And when you walk in, you hear like hella smooth jazz. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, sometimes you just know, like, no one's surprised that behind me there's A. Philip Randolph and Paul Robeson. You know, you just know. Right? You see Paul try to spice his room up because he was making fun of him the other day. <laughs> this was already here. No, the, I didn't see. There's something on. There's something behind you that I didn't see. It looks like a plant or something. Oh, that was already there. That was already there. Were you hiding it before? You said I looked like I was in a hostage. <laughs> okay, well, stop. Let's stop. Let's get serious. They're treating me great. I have plenty of food and water. <laughs> the Jacobin hostage situation. Umar Johnson is very kind to us. <laughs> Umar loves the kids. But when I thought of seriously, like all jokes aside, when David, I I didn't even, I didn't even get a chance to read the piece. I saw the title and read the little the little header, and I was like, oh man, I should get Paul on this. And then I totally forgot to email you for like a week, and I asked Toussaint to do it <laughs> because I did forget. Um, but many of us think of the Jim Crow South, we are reminded of images of lynching and second-class citizenship for its black residents. In movies like Mississippi Burning, we understand that civil rights and justice is only achieved by the grace of white Northerners and the state in the form of the FBI. And even then, wins are titular and murderous law enforcement isn't really put in check. Our guest today has a bit of a counter-narrative of the machinations of the Jim Crow South, one of cross-racial coalitions, poor sharecropping farmers united in finding the intersection of racism and the oppressive land-owning class. These capitalists cared less about the skin color of the people they oppressed with this system of labor. They diversified their exploitation. Statistically, about two-thirds of sharecroppers were white and one-third were black, and they both found themselves economically at the bottom. From our guest article in Jacobin Magazine, towards the end of 1934, the STFU, that's the with the Sharecropper Tenant Farmer Union, am I saying it right? I think Southern Tenant Farmer Union. That's Southern. I, every time I see STFU, I think of the internet thing. So yeah. Right. had nearly a thousand members and it was not long before it too would face violence when two organizers ward h rogers and black minister ch smith went to hold a meeting in a church in gilmore arkansas a group of riding bosses showed up and broke up the meeting rogers was able to escape with the help of a friend but smith was beaten and brought to jail Despite the union's plea for assistance, the American Civil Liberties Union proved unwilling to provide legal assistance. 
So the union devised a plan with the help of the lawyer C.T. Carpenter. About 20 of the white STFU members showed up to the black preacher's hearing armed with canes in case of attack. Their show of solidarity worked and Smith was released into the care of the union. The union's commitment to interracial organizing went from theory to practice that day and holdouts in the black community who dubbed the commitment of the STFU joined in mass. As Mitchell wrote, black and white unity had carried the day. There was never any question that the union members would come to the aid of their brothers, black or white, in their time of need. Please welcome the co-host of Left Reckoning and Jacobin columnist and my co-host for live shows and my friend in real life, David Griscom. How's it going, friends? Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm pretty stoked to have you on and talk about this. Um, I think this is one of those things that when we think of the Jim Crow South, um, we never talk about sharecropping and we never talk about this cross-racial alliance. Um, a term we say a lot on this show that we should define a bit more um, is sharecropping. You know, Pascal talks about it all the time. Um, David, can you explain how the sharecropping system works and why uh, did many see it akin to slavery? Yeah, I mean, so the, the tenant and, and sharecropping uh, system in the South was, at this time, um, you know, it was very much a vestige of, of slavery. Um, it was uh, something where people were very much economically disenfranchised, um, and they were working the land that was owned by a plantation boss. Um, and it was tough, difficult work, mainly growing cotton and things like that. Um, and... You know, I mean, I could give you like a little bit of a rundown of like what the year would look like for people. So at the beginning of the year, um, the tenant farmers would come forward to the company store and they would buy the materials that they needed um, to, you know, to produce cotton um, along with the food and all of those other things that they needed to maintain their lives. Um, oftentimes these are very poor people. I mean, yes, they almost, you know, across the board, they're poor. That's why they're in the situation. Um, and these uh, company stores would charge just outrageous rates uh, to people. So you would start the year massively in debt. That debt would accrue over the year. Um, and then the hard work of planning and clearing the land uh, would get started. Um, you would do that um, for the majority of, of the spring going into the summer. And once the cotton was sort of laid, um, things would sort of slow down a bit. And people would sort of be left to fend for themselves. That was a time of hunting and fishing. And I think really interestingly, uh, the time of the, the big revivals, uh, which is where the plantation bosses would get kind of fire and brimstone preachers uh, to come and speak uh, to the, the, the farmers there. Um, and oftentimes, as H.L. Mitchell, uh, this, the person whose autobiography I was reviewing for Jacobin, notes that the plantation boss would oftentimes slip uh, the preachers a little something extra uh, to make sure that you really drove home the fact that everyone's pitiful condition uh, was driven by their sinful ways, um, which is an interesting kind of connection there between some of that old time Southern religion um, and capitalism. Then you would go through the hard work of uh, actually picking the cotton and, uh, the, you know, everything that in the town was shut down. Kids would be pulled out of school, wives 
uh, fathers, children would all be out there picking. Um, and then it would come uh, time for settlement. And settlement time um, was just like a, a clear example of how abused uh, these, these people were. Uh, because, you know, when it would come down to it, you'd say, okay, well, how much cotton did you produce this year? Okay, I'm going to look at my ledger and see how much you use to feed yourself and your family. Oh, it looks like you're still in debt. Um, and there are plenty of stories. You know, most of these people were either, you know, were, were illiterate um, and did not keep uh, records and things like that. Um, so literally there'd be stories about, um, you know, oh, it just turns out that you're just, you know, $3 in debt this year. You know, you did good. You're not too far in debt. Um, and then someone would note that like, oh, actually I have another ton or two of cotton that you didn't account for. And the, the person looking at the ledgers oftentimes, the, either the plantation owner or one of his, uh, Ryan bosses would look at the ledger and be like, oh yeah. Um, it's still $3, right? They'd find something else. So these people were basically stuck in a, a system of debt slavery. Um, when people did get paid, they were oftentimes paid in company plantation money. Uh, people know the term uh, script from uh, West Virginia, um, but they had a similar kind of system there. So people didn't get paid oftentimes in the U.S. dollar um, and they were buying products and, and things, again, at these company stores that were charging way above market rate. Um the the system was sort of maintained uh, by what was called the riding bosses. Um, again, very similar uh, to what you would imagine on a plantation under slavery. Um, and it also so happened that most of these riding bosses were oftentimes the local sheriff. Um, so a direct connection between your boss and the law. And, you know, the reason, you know, you, you know, you always have to be careful when you make these kind of analogies. The reason that the, the slavery aspect is very apt is that if you were somebody who decided I'm going to leave this situation, it's not working for me, it's not working for my family, I don't have a future here, uh, those same riding bosses would come and gather you and pull you right back uh, to the plantation. And again, this is you know almost uh, 70 years after the end of slavery, um, and mm. people are still basically tied uh, to the land. So that's the vestige of, of the slave system in the South. I mean, it was a system that was incredibly brutal. Oftentimes, one of the only real jobs in town um, in uh, in the Western South, where a lot of the STFU activities were, um, you know. So it was it was a very brutal and and difficult uh, period um, that then gets worse as uh, the Great Depression starts. Um, but that's basically uh, what that system and the conditions were at the beginning of the STFU. Paul, did you have something you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, this is just a comment. I mean, I think it's worth remembering about this period um, when we talk about voter disenfranchisement. Um, clearly, you know, a lot of there was voter suppression among black people in the South. Um, but also, I mean, the planter class was perfectly happy to um, suppress the vote of so many white working people, um, because clearly if they did have the chance to vote. They would vote to try to overturn this system, even regardless of their views on, on race. Um, so that I mean, that's kind of why you see this, this, you know, voter suppression was kind of across the board for working people, black and white, um, you know, during this period. 100 percent. And, you know, just noting, too, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit more, but, you know, it's probably not surprising to people. But, uh, you know, the planning class very much tried um, to pit uh, whites and blacks against each other. Um, and what ends up happening with, with the STFU is so, you know, radical and revolutionary because they were able to break through that thing. 
that the planning class was so desperately afraid of, which was actually just getting working people to be united. Well, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Agricultural Adjustment Act and how that actually helped to form the STFU? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, as as people, you know, can imagine, very difficult time, Great Depression for everybody, um, certainly also in Southern agriculture. And uh, the folks in D.C. came up with the Agricultural Adjustment Act, um, which effectively was calling uh, for um, people uh, to for, for planners uh, to leave uh, a significant portion of their lands mm-hmm. uh, unharvested, about a third. Um, And the way that system was set up was that the government would sort of pay you um, to sort of leave uh, some of your fields unused. Um, And and you had, you know, bizarre things. And one of the great American uh, socialist leaders, uh, Norman Thomas, you know, made a big deal about this, about how disgusting it is uh, to see all this cotton being ripped up when there was a bunch of children in the United States of America who didn't have clothes. Um, H.L. Mitchell notes in his in in this book, um, you know, very kind of Southern (laughs) term here, but he goes, you know, mules have more sense than men. And what he meant by that is that, you know, all the mules are sort of trained never step on, you know, the cotton. Um, and when they were ripping up all of this cotton, you know, the mules were not, you know, participating because they had been trained their entire life to sort of keep this thing um, safe, you know, uh, available to cultivated. Um, so the Agricultural Adjustment Act um, sends money uh, to, and this was nationwide, by the way, and this is one of the, the reasons that the STFU is formed and all this kind of stuff, is that, you know, that system didn't really work too bad if you were a small landholder, particularly in the Midwest. You know, you're just getting money from the government, fine, right? But the problem in the South, where you had this kind of industrialized, um, you know, agrarian system, well, the money went to the, the planners, and the planners were just evicting workers, and you had these mass... Um, you know, epidemics of homelessness of people literally living on the side of the road um, because they they couldn't work anymore. The planners were kicking them off of their land. And while the Agricultural Adjustment uh, Act did sort of have provisions saying, hey, you know, you have to distribute this money to your workers. Well, the enforcement mechanism was the planners. Um, and like Arkansas that, feels yeah. very far away from D.C., you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, is it does it feel a little bit like covid money to you when uh, when businesses got covid money and. uh Sorry, sorry, uh, Henson. We're gonna have to lay off the whole uh, the whole tribe of you. Certainly, I mean there 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 is all of that aspect you know going on. Um, you know the money flows one way basically. Um, you know so before even the STFU kicks off, you know some of the early work was trying to take advantage of government programs. Uh, you know to hire unemployed people, um, and a lot of these tenant farmers were struggling to get those jobs. So the early early period of the STFU and even the pre-STFU moment is, um, you know, just trying to get people access to these federal uh, programs that were going on. Um, and I just should like note really fast to maybe introduce, um, you know, one of the main characters here, the one of the founders of the uh, Southern Tenant Farmers Union, H.L. Mitchell, um, who I can get a little bit more to um, his, his kind of biography and stuff in, in, in a little bit. You know, he was a radical. He was a socialist. Uh, he was the secretary of the Arkansas Socialist Party. Um, And when he was meeting with uh, Norman Thomas, um, who was one of the leaders of the Socialist Party at that time, um, you know, Norman Thomas basically said something along the lines of, you know, it's really great all the work that you've been doing, expanding membership in the Socialist Party in Arkansas. But what's really needed is an organization for the workers uh, themselves. And it's probably a good idea to start organizing people in the main industry in your area, which are tenant farmers. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so one thing that I think is just important to note 
that the STFU actually, um, you know, it's organic in the sense of, of it being grassroots and growing in, in the way that it did. Uh, but it was socialists who sort of said, OK, here there's a need here for an organization for working people. Um, and it was that kind of reorientation to like the actual, uh, you know, being class rooted, being rooted in like the needs of folks um, that led to the STFU coming out of, uh, you know, some leaders in the Socialist Party. Paul, do you want to add to that? Yeah, uh, kind of a follow up question about H.L. Mitchell. Um, you know, when I think about leader, working class leaders like him, and there's so many examples from this era broadly, I mean, whether it's, you know, union people, you know, rural people, whatever it is, but it kind of strikes me that at this time, institutions of the left were a place where regular people like Mitchell could find a home mm -hmm. and they could really kind of develop and display their leadership skills, their organizing skills that could all blossom. And I feel like today that's kind of less likely, like where a regular ass person, you know, a, a regular UPS driver, a regular whatever, um, someone who doesn't already know the like language and symbols of the left and the culture can be welcomed. I mean, what do you what do you think of that? I mean, are we at a time now where it's kind of less likely you get these regular working class people being welcomed on the left and being able to uh, develop. Well, do you what? feel, well, can I add this to your question, Paul, before you answer, David, do you feel that this is also a time and Pascal also used to love to talk about this moment because this is a moment that we don't really talk about because when we think about leftism, we always stop at the sixties, mm -hmm. Marx, and then the sixties. And there's a reason why, right? Because it really gets taken over by the Academy and this is a moment where the left really is truly the working class. Like this is a group of socialists and communists kind of even amongst them, amongst these regular people, you know, bickering about the communist party as well. Um, what's your opinion on this era, David? I know you like to talk about this era as well, being from the South yourself. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I think, um, you know, just specifically on Paul's question, I think that, you know, one thing that the STFU did so well, and even the Socialist Party did so well, was actually, um, one, recruiting and developing talent within within the working class. And they did that through um, providing, like, one thing that the STFU did in addition to its uh, political and economic work is they just did education, right? They just did night school for people. Um, and, you know, later Commonwealth College which Megan Day at Jacobin has written some really great pieces about, which was a socialist college in uh, Western Arkansas. Um, you know, they were sending people out there. Right. And that's a, that's a really, really radical and, and fascinating tradition. And it's wild to sort of see that kind of thing happening in the thirties. That sort of seems impossible uh, to happen uh, today. You know, another thing to, before I get to like the meat of the question too, that's really notable that I wasn't able to put as much in the piece that really struck me um was the internationalism of, of of this union and not just in the sense of like oh we're paying attention to things going on across the world you had members of like the the trade union movement in the united kingdom going out to rural arkansas to learn from each other to help each other uh, to instruct each other um and that's just such a wild thing to think about you know rural arkansas in the 1930s having socialists from england coming over um you know just seems seems so far off uh, from what we're able to do today even at a moment when we're so much more connected and traveling so much easier. Um, but no, 100%, uh, one of the things that I think is really notable about this time uh, was that the the, the left and socialist uh, movements in, in, in the country were very much focused on cultivating and recruiting talent from within the class. 
Um, mm. You know, there's certainly characters, you know, a lot of the, you know, there were people in, in the STFU who were, you know, college educated folks, predominantly preachers, by the way, um, you know, which had, especially back then, like a very real connection uh, to the people, right? You might've went and got a fancy degree, but then you end up in, you know, the South in a rural place. Um, so you have that education, um, but you're also like connected to people in their daily life. And a lot of those people uh, were, you know, radicals and socialists, right? Which is an interesting kind of split um, as, as I was noting earlier about how some of that fire and brimstone religion was used to uh, maintain capital domination of people. Uh, there was also a kind of radical um, socialist tradition within some of the American uh, uh uh, a Christian movement at that time. Um, but no, 100%. I mean, I think one thing that's really notable about this, this moment is that these were just normal people. And that's one thing I really tried to drive home in, in, in this piece. It's like, you know, we haven't even gone to any gallantry or, you know, the, the kind of, you know, amazing stories. I mean, there's parts of this book that feel very cinematic, right? Because mm-hmm. not only were they taking on the bosses and the federal government, but they were literally taking up, uh, fighting against the KKK and not just in the sense of, you know, political struggle, but literally like KKK guys would come and shoot up your house um, and, and, and people would shoot back. Right. It was a real um, shooting war, um, you know, and, and that only comes when you actually have people who are very rooted in the class and like a couple things, just like the STFU ends up like feuding with some of the socialist party later um because hl mitchell and members of the stfu sort of recognized that uh, agricultural production in the south had been socialized right the profits were privatized but the production was socialized um and we're sort of calling for common ownership of um the agricultural system um which was the complete opposite of what a lot of the midwestern and and yankee uh socialists wanted because they they dreamed of agriculture sort of being a you know, solo, small family, small landholding uh, farms. A lot of them were small landholders. Um, you know, so it was an interesting kind of clash between some of the more educated and well-meaning socialists. Let's not, you know, attack them too hard. Um, but, you know, a lot of the members in the Socialist Party outside of the South very much were against this idea of collectivization of, of agriculture, while these tenant farmers uh, saw that as the way to sort of build out a, a, a future um, system. Paul? Yeah, and, uh, and I think that's important context, too, with the Klan um, and their role in, in this, or Klan-like formations. It's like, it's not just a group of people, you know, who are really prejudiced and have really bad personal views. I mean, sure, that's part of it, but, like, it's kind of like they were the shock troops of trying to enforce and maintain a certain social um, an economic system. Um, so I think, again, this broader economic context of the Klan is useful mm-hmm. um, instead of just thinking about it as like a bunch of people who like to be racist together. Um, and you, you also talked about Mitchell's ability to kind of win sympathy and support from Northerners to the cause. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of never really thought about that of like why it, they might have felt it would be necessary to like win over people in the North. Um, could you kind of talk a little bit more why they saw that as important and how they did that? One, 100%. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm forgetting the direct quote, but, you know, um, you know, somebody in speaking highly of H.L. Mitchell, um, you know, has this great line about him um, that said uh, his, his draw was authentic. His simplicity was not right. Um, <laughs> this was a guy who very much could go up to New York and sort of play the role. 
um, that some people might have wanted to see. Um, but he was somebody who was incredibly well read and had a deep understanding of, of history, of literature, of, of politics. Um, but one, you know, in in New York uh, for years, uh, they had these kind of large gatherings of just supporters of the tenant farmers uh, with within the working class movement in New York, uh, showings of, of solidarity, um, which is again like a truly amazing thing. I mean, could you imagine? Something like that happening with, you know, American leftists in New York today uh, when the coal miners were on strike in Alabama. Uh, it was a very unique um, thing. And one of the things that the STFU uh, knew how to do really well um, was garner uh, public sympathy and support uh, for, for their movement. Um, and they used the media um, and, and reports on the plight of tenant farmers uh, very, very well. Um, to, uh, you know, to sort of make this into a national issue. And, and they use that very well, for example, when they were sort of clashing with the FDR administration. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, particularly just getting, um, you know, wealthier folks or just folks who are more well off than poor you know, Southern farmers uh, to donate money to the SDFU was critical, actually, in their ability to uh, to grow and support, uh, you know, this education campaign that they were engaged in, the, the political and the economic campaign that they were engaged in. Um, you know, it's a Southern movement in the sense of, you know, this is where they were operating was in the South. Um, but this became a kind of uh, rallying cry for for socialists and leftists all across the country uh, to find ways to, to support, um, which is, again, a very interesting thing to see how deep the connections of uh, the STFU are even outside of the South. You mentioned something in your piece, and I think we should probably touch on this, the Elaine Massacre. Uh, can you tell us what this was and why it happened? Yeah, the Elaine Massacre was a brutal massacre of uh, tenant farmers, black tenant farmers, um, who uh, were trying to, to organize and, and build movements uh, for power. And they were, you know, a significant amount of people were shot down and, and killed for uh, this economic organizing that they were, they were engaged in. And it was something that sort of cast a big shadow over the early days of the STFU because people had this living memory of, um, um, you know, of, uh, of um, you know, just brutal racial terror. And, you know, one of the things that the STFU sort of had to overcome in its early days was moving the commitments to interracial organizing, interracial solidarity from a principle and a slogan and, and all of that into like an actual practice. Um, and that's why I know in, in, in the piece that, you know, the early days of the STFU, they were getting people to sign up. Um, but again, the KKK and their offshoot, the Knight Riders, um, who, who uh, you know, is effectively just an offshoot of the KKK, um, you know, were breaking up meetings from the get-go. They, they knew the second that this, start, this started to happen, that it was extremely dangerous. And so they needed to crush it and they, cr they, they tried to crush it. Um, you know, with this kind of brutality, using the kind of living memory of, of brutal slaughter um, in the region. And it was because of the tenacity of, of these organizers and members of the STFU uh, to not back down. And there were a lot of folks in the early days of the STFU um, who were, you know, trying to push for it to become a whites only organization or to have separate chapters for whites and blacks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and hl mitchell just refused that from the get-go which i think you know that's probably the critical moment about whether or not uh, not only if we would say like the stfu is like a good organization but also their success um because you know if you organize um you know in a bifurcated way <laughs> workers then it's very easy to sort of pit those forces against each other 
Um, and the STFU was able to sort of break through that by having white members, you know, show up and support black members and to not just sort of say, oh, well, you know, this is just the conditions of the time. You know, some of these folks are going to have to take on more risks than others. Um, very much like living the union slogan of like an injury to one is an injury to all. Um, and, you know, you had obviously that, that, that story that I know to my piece about all these folks getting together and surrounding the courthouse uh, when one of the early uh, organizers, black organizers in the union was arrested. Um, but throughout this um, story, you know, you would have just white members showing up armed uh, to, uh, you know, guard and protect um, some of the larger black population centers um, in the STFU. And it was that kind of everyday um, practical organizing that really, you know, shot up the membership. I mean, after they they rescued um, the, the the black minister C.H. Smith, um, the the membership in the STFU just exploded. It, it exploded almost overnight because you know there uh, was understandably like a little bit of reluctance um, from particularly you know some some black folks in, in in the area to join the STFU because it meant one you could be targeted, two people were seeing folks being sort of kicked off of their land, um, and then obviously also the racial terror. Um, and when it became clear that the STFU was something that wasn't just going to talk the talk, but actually walk the walk, um, membership, um, you know, grew immensely. And I think that that's one of the really interesting um, and, and, and critical lessons that we can sort of take from this is that like a lot of left organizations like to talk about a lot of things, a lot of things that we believe. And I think that's all well and good. Um, but one of the challenges for socialist politics is always trying to convince working people that being in an organization, that being engaged in politics, that being engaged in union uh, activities like can actually improve your life um, and the STFU um, under you know tremendous difficulty was able to start winning things um, for for everyday folks and that you know was cr critical. Do, for them. do you think this is harder to do in the current time that we're in right now because uh, the conditions back then are very different when you're trying to build solidarity right in that situation let's take for example the actor strike that just went on um terrence howard i'm sure you've seen this paul you've seen uh you know who terrence howard is yeah um it's hard out here for a pimp maybe maybe the worst pimp ever man um <laughs> uh he was telling his story about how the, in playing a pimp you're pretending right you're not really a pimp um that he would not slap a woman because he said it was going to be career suicide. And and I was like, but you're playing a pimp. That's kind of what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you get it. You've seen Superfly. And then he went on to talk about how the union was not helping him with wages. And he's been very loud about how unions don't help. And there's a lot of working people, especially people in the trades, that feel like unions are just corrupt institutions that take money out of your check. Mm. Paul, as someone that actually does organizing, and I'm sure you hear this rhetoric more often than not, what do you say to that? Um, you know, are you asking what I would say to a worker who is saying that or? Yeah. Or, yeah, well, I mean, 
there's a few ways you could approach it. I mean, depending the context and who you're talking to, but, um, you know, I mean, part of it is very clearly propaganda. I mean, there are some unions that have and do act in a not great way or a corrupt way, just like there is that example in every institution. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, the thing is now, I mean, union density is so low. So few people actually have the experience of being in a union and it's like, you know, so whatever they're basing their thoughts or are something received from the out, outside usually. Um, but often, I mean, a lot, a really good way to combat that is not necessarily through like a rhetorical argument, but through, they often say like a union really before you organize the workers to join, like you should really just start acting like a union beforehand. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, you know, like a, a collective action that wins something, even if it's something very small, you know, just recently in, in some Amazon plants um, on the East Coast, like in you know New York, New Jersey, workers were fighting for the right to have an earbud in while they're working because Amazon was claiming it's a safety hazard. <laughs> and they put back saying like, you know, at UPS, drivers are always on the earbuds and they want it. And it sounds like it's a very small thing. But um, as an example of like, you know, when we band together, we can actually win something. So, I mean, the most kind of back to David's point, I mean, the, the most powerful example is in practice. Um, and I do think I mean, the positive is right now we're in a moment where actually the esteem of unions is actually pretty high among the population. And it has, you know, in a way it hasn't been in a long time. And we're going to, we'll see where this all goes. I don't want to get too excited too soon, but the auto workers, you know, their theory has been, we need to use the momentum from their strike and from all the struggle that's been happening to, to organize a lot of new workers now and do it on a momentum basis, which is kind of how it usually has happened historically is not like this methodical, progression but you you seize a moment of momentum and you know there's stories coming out you know they've thousands of workers are reaching out to the uaw it's not even them reaching out to the to the workers but they're you know crying out for a union they're getting cards signed um so i think we're in a moment thankfully where i think a lot of that anti-union propaganda is starting to wear off i mean partly because it's like it's hard to blame unions when they're so weak right now sadly you know um you know, and not many people have experience with them. Um, you know, it's hard to make the claim that they're really powerful and they're really influencing everything right now. Um, so I think it, it kind of is a different moment. Um, and, and I actually just wanted to say to what David's last point um, to the last question, it kind of reminds me there's a lot of parallels between the development of industrial unions in the North in the 30s and 40s and the growth of the CIO. Whereas, you know, you had, in 1919, you know, famous year for all these race riots across the country. The 1920s, also bad race riots, bad experiences of unions not letting in black workers and conflict, black workers being used as strike breakers. So, like, the organizers of the 30s had to overcome the very understandable skepticism of black workers that this time it would be different. Um, and people had living memory of these incidents and they, you know, they had to really show through action. And again, it was a lot of it was done on the shop floor, kind of showing in practice, like we're actually going to stand with each other this time. And and it was a lot of socialists and communists who were in these unions who were often at the forefront of racial justice and making sure they were doing interracial organizing. So I, I kind of see a parallel path there with the uh, Southern Tenants Farmers Union and industrial unions in the north.
And and maybe just to add to that, like I think one thing that also like in addition to you know the the stuff that we're getting at, um, you know, with like them getting wins, right? They, they you know they went on strike to get higher uh, pay for 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 cotton, um, and, and and things like that that were pretty exceptional. The strategies that they used there. Um, but I think one thing that also gave the STFU a lot of trust from everyday folks was like one of the things that's unique about the STFU versus almost any other union um, is that it's probably the only union out there that encouraged people to leave. <laughs> um, and, and like one of the things that the STFU did was help uh, Southern Tenant Farmers uh, Union members get jobs in New Jersey, get jobs in California, get jobs in Arizona, get jobs in Texas outside of the tenant farming system. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that like, you know, sort of goes against, you know, a lot of kind of union strategy, which is like, I have to protect my industry. I have to make sure that this thing maintains itself. And the STFU very much, I think, oriented itself as like a class organization that like our number one goal is not necessarily the preservation of the tenant farming system. Um, they want to actually eradicate that. Um, and I think that gave people a lot of trust. And, you know, also talking about what you were just saying, Paul, about being creative. I mean, the STFU was never really well funded, but they would do stuff all the time with very little resources. You know, and it might be as small as like, you know, paying for a doctor's visit or, or something like that for people. Um, you know, that 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 kind of activity really helped uh, garner a lot of trust. Um, you know, they also helped, uh, you know, they, they, they at, at a certain point, got some money together uh, to build collecting collective farming operations in Alabama and Mississippi. Um, pretty small scale. Um, but, you know, you had people living on collective farms, uh, black and white families living right next to each other in Alabama and Mississippi in the 30s and 40s, uh, which is pretty exceptional, um, uh, you know, for, for, for many, many reasons. And it's just... I think it's like that kind of everyday commitment uh, to people, both in like the direct political struggle, but also, you know, the, the education work and all these other things that this was a place, uh, this was something that you want to be a part of um, because you could tell that this was an organization that was really looking out for you. Um, I think that that's a really important um, aspect. Um, another important aspect, and someone mentioned it in the, in the chat comments, and I want to say thank you to, I think it was Left Flank Vets. That raided the show. So thank you very much, Marcus and the Left Flank Vets. Solidarity. Um, why was the Communist Party uh, antagonistic to Mitchell? And how did their vision for the STFU differ from that of the original socialist one? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting story. And there's, um, you know, some ba background here that might not be able to get fully into. But you can name names. It's been a hundred. Well, years. I mean, these people are all dead, so I can certainly <laughs> name names. But you can totally name names, you're fine. Um, no, I mean, like I think one of the things, um, because you know, the American Co Communist Party has like a very interesting history in in this country, in the labor movement, and in the South. Um, and one of the things that the the Communist Party was trying to do early on was they they wanted H. L. Mitchell to become a member of the Communist Party um, from the get go. And you know, again, Mitchell was a dyed in the wool socialist. Um, he was a big fan of Lenin, uh, had read Marx. You know, this is not some kind of soft reformer. This was a radical. Mm -hmm. um, but the Communist Party basically wanted to have influence over one of the largest organizations of, of poor black and white workers in the South. Um, so they tried really hard to take over the organization. So at first they were, you know, coming up to Mitchell. 
Um, and I think Mitchell made a kind of tactical decision, which I think makes a lot of sense, is that, you know, if we have to come up against the planners, the FDR administration, all these people, I don't think that we need to be encouraging people to become members of the Communist Party of the United States of America. It's just too much uh, to put on our backs. Mm-hmm. Um, the Socialist Party, you know, begins to start to implode at this period of, of, of time, too. Um, so there was, you know, a, a kind of lack of a party structure, particularly later in, in the struggle. Um but yeah, so the Communist Party starts making overtures uh, to members and to Mitchell, and they're sort of uh, uh, rebuked at first. And then the Communist Party tries to take over the organization um, in a way that, you know, <laughs> sounds so comical um, today because it's just the kind of shit that you could do back then. H.L. Mitchell just like wasn't around for a little while and they just went into the STFU office and like to- <laughs> took like letterhead and shit from them and started sending out letters. And the idea was basically they were going to to send out letters to make to sort of expose Mitchell as a member of the Communist Party, even though he wasn't um, so that he would get the fire and the flack already. And then sort of, OK, well, that will sort of alleviate the the tension that he said is, oh, I don't want to deal with this sort of throw him in the fire. Um, well, uh, th- they end up uh, Mitchell and all the guys find out that they've taken over the office and, the, and they sort of deal with that there. Then. Um, uh some of the members, Don Henderson, I don't know if you're familiar with him, Paul. Um, he was a CIO guy, a Communist Party member, um, starts trying to create tension between black and white workers within the organization. Um, the STFU always had a, um, a, a pretty representative um, organizing committee and higher up officials of blacks and whites. Um but uh, Don Henderson basically starts, uh, you know, trying to play into this idea. It's like, oh, you know, the STFU is just run by white people and they're just trying to take advantage of black folks. Um, which, um, and and they got a, a guy, E.B. McKenney, who was a black organizer, um, one of the actual founders of, of the STFU, um, who got really into Marcus Garvey. Um, and they got him... Um, you know, to start to try to lead a split in the organization. Um, and, you know, it becomes really dangerous. I mean, H.L. Mitchell at one point gets kicked out of the STFU because the Communist Party um, started circulating. Because you could, you know, the thing is, like, you talk about fake news and things like that. Like, at, at that time, you just put something on paper and you start distributing it to people. It could feel very real. A telephone at church. Yeah, 100%. So they started saying, oh, H.L. Mitchell is, you know, driving a fancy car. He's been eating STFU, eating through the STFU funds. You know, just things that were demonstrably false, um, but tried to do that. And it ended up um, pushing uh, H.L. Mitchell and some of the early leaders of the STFU out of the organization. Um, but one, the uh, the STFU became really dysfunctional when those guys were kicked out. It was a short period of time they were kicked out. Um, and, and people sort of realize that, oh, man, all these folks at the Communist Party are sort of trying to push into this union seem to be very interested in doing things for the Communist Party and for sort of having us talk a lot about Russia um, and not really for taking on, um, you know, our, our enemies. And they're able to regain that. And it's, a, it's a sad story, though, I have to say, as somebody who, you know, uh, um, you know, spent a lot of time with this book and, and reading this, this story because, um, it's it's sad to see a lot of the early members who ended up sort of being swayed by the the Communist Party folks um, sort of throw their lot in uh, with them. Some of them um, basically like reformed um, or you know recognized what was going on um, later uh, once they started to see what uh, the the kind of new communist influence was doing within the STFU. Um, a lot of this is also Commonwealth College. Um, 
again, which is uh, the, the Socialist College out in Arkansas, which also had a kind of shift in its membership um, from that early socialist tradition to that more radical socialist tradition to basically being taken over by a lot of people from New York City and the North um, who were just very much focused on building the Communist Party. Um, you know, so that creates a lot of tension. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, not to get too sidetracked on the Communist Party, but I think this kind of is worth, you know, um, highlighting to kind of explain why actually some like very radical people in the U.S. left historically were were anti-communist. And some of them, I mean, people like A. Philip Randolph, just name one example, by Rustin eventually. Um, you know, I just I wrote a piece that came out yesterday about Harry Van Arsdale, who is the leader of the Electrical Workers Union in New York who won went on strike and won a 25-hour work week built cooperative housing for workers things like that he was anti-communist and you, you would ask yourself like why how could these people get caught up in that but i mean think about what david just described about in some instances the way they would try to take over organizations i mean if you experience that and you're someone serious about building the movement i mean that's going to piss you off you know and the classic talking point against the communist party was they really take their orders from moscow you know that that's really who's running the show and part of that was an exaggeration but part of that was kind of real and think about you know if you were a union worker and your co-worker who was a communist party person you know in the lead up to world war ii is saying you know one day is saying you know hitler's bad and then this the Hitler Stalin pact happens and then all of a sudden they're saying that's you know Hitler's fine which which they were doing and then once that treaty was broken oh no Hitler's bad again you lose credibility you know and I think that's what happened and you know people like A. Philip Randolph had experiences multiple times where at a certain point it became clear they're just trying to take over this group or they're not really in it for the movement and I think now, does that excuse McCarthyism? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And is that to say, I mean, tons and tons of extremely dedicated, talented people in the Communist Party who did a lot, you know, for labor movement and everything. But I think it does help to explain why people who were actually quite radical became uh, anti-communist when it when it came specifically to the Communist Party of the United States. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and I think um, and not you know, the objectives of communism. Yeah, no, the, the, that's yeah. the thing is, and I think because people sometimes I think get the wrong impression here is that like all these people sort of, uh, you know, stop being radicals or stop being socials or things like that. It was the institution and the organization of the Communist Party, particularly in the, in the South, you know, was just trying to say, OK, well, how can we sort of expand our membership almost artificially? Um, and the way to do that was to sort of take over other kinds of organizations. And as you know, I was sort of noting, it became very clear um, that the intention was not to do it, you know, as I said earlier, like the STFU was like the only organization to encourage union members to leave, um, you know, and, and to move somewhere else and to find new jobs and things like that. Is that kind of practical, you know, care for working class folks that just wasn't very present uh, when the communists are getting more influence within the STFU. And I think that certainly hurt them um, a lot. Uh, Paul, you have a question I know you want to ask. Can you see your list or you want me to read it? I do. I think you might be talking about, I don't know which question you're talking about, but I did want to ask. Um, it's a little oh, bit of a two-parter. Go for um, it. If you know it, go for it. You know, and I, David, I don't expect you to be like the whisperer of rural America, but, uh, you know, 
a lot of the country is still rural. You know, With it's a big those hats oh. behind him. If he's not, then he's. Uh, I mean, you're kind of. <laughs> but I mean, what would you say? You know, obviously things are very different now than the 1930s. But like in 2023, what are the key issues? You know, in terms of some parts of rural America that you know the left should be focusing on in those areas, and kind of related to that, I mean, what is a socialist vision for agriculture? in the 21st mm. century? I mean, I think, um, you know, there's the kind of basic organize. I mean, like everyone knows if you've done any door knocking, one thing that gets people very rightfully worked up is, is right to repair. Um, you know, and that's like the, the more like basic kind of political organizing thing. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, rural politics in this country and trying to, um, to shift it, I mean, you know, a lot of the demands that people have are, are similar, right? People want to, um, you know, have higher wages. And I think uh, more than anything is what you're seeing in, in rural America is people wanting to be able to continue to live in their community. Um, more and more, uh, you know, rural America is sort of being in the same way that's what's happening in cities is being bought up and taken over by um, very, very wealthy uh, landowners. Um, the the expense and the difficulty of, of, of surviving, getting by in rural America, people are seeing, you know, families that have been places for generations. Um, slowly having to sort of trickle out because they either can't afford um, to to live in their communities or because of, of lack of services, lack of access to food, lack of access to health care, um, and most importantly, lack of access to high paying work. Um, you know, there's a lot of demands for people to be able to maintain and, and, and live in, in, in their communities. Um, and I think that um, recognizing that uh, we're all under this kind of umbrella system of, of, of capitalism and trying to take on uh, the folks that are meaning that you can't, are, the, the folks who are, are preventing us from being able to live in our communities, um, I think is, is something that's very, very viable. Um, the, the second question on agriculture, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting um, to read uh, Mitchell's accounts. I mean, I'll, I'll just read this from, from the piece here. Um, you know, towards the end of, of his book, uh, he starts talking about, um, you know, the, the the future of agriculture. And one thing that's interesting about Mitchell in this period of time is that, you know, they really had two feet in between two different worlds. Right. Uh, one, um, the old agrarian plantation south and what we would now call the new south. Um, and, and they sort of saw that transition happening around them. Uh, you know, the, the tenant farming system uh, broke. Um, you know, one, because of the power of the STFU to organize, um, but two, because agriculture changed. Agriculture became more mechanized. The amount of labor um, needed to, to maintain and to grow crops uh, declined. Um, and I think Mitchell was very forward looking um, instead of being because, you know, I mean, what's the, the Marxist take on, you know, agrarian or rural folks is, you know, always that they're. They're reactionary, right? That they're sort of against the the forward moving of, of of society and progress and technology and things like that. Um, that is not an accurate way to describe somebody like H. L. Mitchell. This is not some. This is somebody who had tremendous love for the people, who had tremendous love for where he came from. Um, but and 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 because of that love, he didn't become sentimental <laughs> about the tenant farming system. Um, and he said uh, at the end of his book, he said, eventually agriculture, America's largest industry, must be socialized and operated for the benefit of those who work on the land and those who consume its products. This, I believe, is the real wave of the future. And I think that, you know, as we are sort of seeing all these conversations in this country about food insecurity, people's anxiety about the con consolidation of agriculture under the hands of a few large corporations, 
um, you know, I, I actually think that that claim and that desire and that dream of actually having socially controlled uh, food, something that's democratically uh, controlled by by the workers and by society at large, um, I think actually has a lot of, uh, you know, uh, potential uh, to sort of being a calling card of, of the American socialist movement, because everybody from like sometimes like very well founded to sometimes a little bit conspiratorial level stuff when it comes to the food system in America. Um, most people are very anxious about the way that we produce food um, and, 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 and food security and things like that. And I think that that's something that you can bring up um, in rural America or in, in, in urban America uh, right now. And the, the vision that H.L. Mitchell sort of laid out to call for collectivization of agriculture, um, you know, and, and as I said earlier, was something that got him in a lot of hot water, both uh, with the socialists and also with the federal government and the planning class. Um, I think it's something that we should definitely pick up again today. Paul? I agree. You know, there's there, there, there's okay. one thing I wanted to note, um, and I, I can't remember if I was able to put it in the piece. That's just like an interesting note here. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, the KKK and how, you know, racial terror was a, a tactic of uh, the ruling class, right? It was, you know, racial terror for the purpose of, um, you know, breaking up labor and, and, and solidarity movements. Um, another thing that's really interesting in, in this story is the role of finance capital. Um, so when people were sort of being kicked off of their land um, and people were organizing and the STFU was growing in, in power, uh, the STFU was trying to negotiate a kind of floor um, for how much you have to pay uh, to, 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 for, for cotton, right? Say, so we won't pick cotton for less than this, you know, very classic kind of union things. Like This is what it costs to get this labor done. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the night riders and all these people try to break it. Um, but even with some of these plantation bosses and plantation owners who might have been a little bit sympathetic, and I'm not going to shed too many tears for these folks. Um, but um, there were multiple stories in this in this book about plantation owners saying, you know what, I do want to recognize the STFU. I do want to start negotiating with these folks. You know, I live on the same land. These are my neighbors, whatever. Um, you know, I, I, I will accept their demands. They got threatened, one, by the Knight Riders, um, but I think most effectively by uh, finance capital, by the banks. And the banks threatened to sort of collect loans, to potentially foreclose land, uh, to put economic pressure on the plantation bosses because they recognize finance capital in the South. Well, you know, what is that around? It's around cotton. They recognized that if the, the cost that it, if the cost to produce cotton went up in the South, that was going to hurt their bottom line. Um, you know, so it's an interesting aspect to see about the way that, you know, finance capital and capitalism um, sort of influences and directly pressures people who might have be, been like convinced by the moral arguments or the social arguments of people um, that that was actually like the final strong arm against folks. Um, there's a really moving story where. Um, you know, a bunch of these these uh, uh, tenant farmers had been kicked off of their land um, and they were living in these kind of shanty towns on the side of the road. Um, and one of the plantation owners was out there like distributing food and crying and, and like devastated because he had been told um, that if he recognized the STFU, if he um, recognized their their demands that the, the banks would come and foreclose on his property. And I think he was a smaller landholder, if, if I'm calling the story correctly. But, you know, it's an interesting uh, little wrinkle. Um, in the way that we think about this, too, is that there are very powerful forces that, uh, you know, played a direct role, um, you know, because sometimes the left 
you know, talks about the power of capital, but sometimes you don't see the way that it actually operates. And in that case, they were actually pressuring the boss to maintain, you know, brutal um, ex exploitation of people um, and making a direct threat against that person's life um, and, and, and property. And, and a lot of this violence that we see uh, has a lot more to do with labor struggles and, and union organization than simply just, you know, masochistic uh, people in, in bedsheets. Yeah, and I'll tell you, though, the, the STFU guys were tough as hell. <laughs> uh, they would oftentimes, you know, they would shoot back and they would fight back. I mean, I opened up the the, yeah. the story in Jacobin uh, with Ward Rogers, a radical Methodist preacher who says, I can lead a lynch mob. <laughs> I can I can lead a lynch mob against any planner in Poinsett County, um, which is a pretty incredible image uh, to, to think about, especially what you sort of associate with the lynch mob is, is not going after the, the bosses and the planners. Um, H.L. Mitchell, uh, there's a story that I really love. Um, you know, they, people were always trying to break up their meetings. And H.L. Uh, Mitchell had multiple assassination attempts against him, obviously. Um, one of my favorites, though, was uh, he was giving a speech in eastern Arkansas um, in a town square. And uh, from his telling, he's like, somebody threw a firecracker up on the stage. Um and, and he said, oh, I'm not going to get scared by some hooligan. Well, actually, some guy was just like repeat. It was luckily it was a bad shot, but was just actually like unloading their, their revolver at him um, and, and, and luckily missed every time. And H.L. Mitchell just kept on talking, which is a pretty badass uh, image. Um, you know, there's, you know, it, maybe uh, on like a kind of uh, fun note, if, if you all don't mind. I know like, Paul, your 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 piece on Tony Mazaki, um, I really love. Um, for many reasons, but one of the, the points that you made in it was how much fun uh, being in the union was. Um, and that's very much the case in the STFU. Uh, one thing that's really fun about this book, and I'll just put it up for people, you know, I don't get anything for it. It's an older book, but mean things happening in this land, I do highly suggest people read it. Is that like in addition to like all this really cool labor history, Southern history and things like that, it's just like these guys like, you know, getting fucked up, <laughs> sleeping around, getting in trouble. Um, you know, H.L. Mitchell was a young, good-looking guy, so he, there's a lot in this book, actually, about women he was interested in, uh, which is a very fun thing to get in a history book, um, you know. Um, another thing about, like, a bad shot, there was a guy um, who was an early member of the STFU who um, thought that H.L. Mitchell had slept with his wife, um, and maybe he did, maybe he didn't. H.L. Mitchell denies in the book. Um, but this guy kept on trying to shoot H.L. Mitchell. <laughs> and it's a funny thing. It will, like every like 10 years or so in this story, it'll be like, oh, and this guy showed up again at <laughs> a meeting I was at and tried to kill me. Um, you know, there's just the one, one thing that I really love uh, about this book is it's in addition to like the, the history and, and the practical lessons that we get is there's a really human look at at, at people and. Michael Harrington um, wrote uh, the preface to this book, um, which is a little funny because, uh, and it's a great preface. I, I, I'll give him a lot of credit there, um, talking about the South and the radical and revolutionary potential in there. H.L. Mitchell had a little bit of a um, up and down relationship with Harrington later in life. Um, but um, Harrington has a great line. It's like, this is a, a testament to the grandeur of everyday people. Um, reading this book is like having a conversation with history, not the history of presidents and princes, but the history of those who do the dying and the living. We are enormously in H.L. Mitchell's debt. 
And I think that that's a really um, important thing to actually take away from this book that I haven't been able to talk about as much because obviously you want to get into the history um, and, and, and the kind of practical uh, organizing lessons that you can get from it is that, you know, it, this is a, a, a book is like a real testament to like a love of, of everyday and common folks. Um, and throughout the book, there's, uh, you know, just all these great stories that I was noting before, um, but also a lot of poetry. John Hancocks, who is a, um, a, a, a was STFU member, a, a poet and a, a singer. He wrote the song Roll the Union On. People might know it. He also wrote a great song called Mean Things Happening in This Land. Um, and there's just a lot of space in there, too, in addition to the, the political and the, the economic struggles of just sort of like a really beautiful window into everyday folks' life. And one of the things that's really uh, wonderful about Mitchell in this period um, is that Mitchell, um, towards the end of his life, you know, very much became a historian of the South um, and, uh, you know, did a lot of work sort of making sure that the STFU's history was preserved, that the stories of these people were preserved. Um, there's a lot of really great interviews with members of the STFU um, uh, out there from UNC and I think uh, another Arkansas university that I'm forgetting right now, um, you know, because of that, 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 that testament. And I think that that's like another aspect too. you know, talking about some of the lessons and some of the things that are missing is that, man, these guys didn't leftists in this country do have like two um, ways of talking about working people um, that, that I think aren't particularly helpful. One is uh, the, you know, the kind of snide disdain of, of the mob and the crowd that comes from some leftists who aren't really politically or socially active. But, you know, oh, Americans, they just love cheeseburgers and, and whatever the fuck. Right. That's nasty anti-human stuff. Um, but also this almost kind of uh, myth making that sort of takes people from what they actually are, people who are just like us, you know, rooted folks trying to get a better life for their family, for themselves, for their children, um, who had tremendous courage and, and tenacity and heroism uh, because of the conditions that they were under. Um, but they were just normal rural people from Arkansas and Tennessee and, you know, across the South. And I think H.L. Mitchell does a really great job at sort of, at, you know, to borrow again that phrase from uh, Michael Harrington, um, you know, telling them about the grandeur of ordinary people without turning anyone into like a storybook, right? Because in addition to the good things that people did, there's, you know, oh man, this guy's a little bit of a creep or, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? It's just a very cl clear and and I think, and that makes it more beautiful to me, uh, retelling and, 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 and visiting of, of folks in a particular historical moment. Imperfect people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, th th there's this, there's, for some reason, people are still trying to make heroes, and I'm not a big fan of heroes. I'm a huge fan of regular people because we are extremely flawed and imperfect, but that doesn't mean we can't do extraordinary things. Together. Yeah, and that's like the heroism. I mean, I don't mind having heroes personally, but I, I think that like the problem is when you make people mythical, right? Because the, the point is, is that like, there's just this latent capacity in all of us. And that's the thing that I think is really beautiful here is that, that, you know, not to be cliche or miss the eye or anything like that, but there is a hero in all of us. Right. Um, and I think that that's sort of laid out here pretty well. And can I, not to go too much on a tangent, I don't want to keep you too long, but um, I mean, going back to this point around someone like HL Mitchell yeah. existing in a context and environment, you know, where he could flourish in the left and going back to this idea of 
you know, organizing being fun and, you know, in, in a way raunchy or, or whatever. And I, I think this goes back to like why an issue like cancel culture is actually important. And I don't mean that in the sense of like a show getting canceled or whatever, but I mean, in the sense of like a stifling environment where an ordinary person who again is, hasn't gone to the grad school seminar when they learn the thing they're supposed to say and don't come as like a perfect left robot an environment where they don't feel comfortable to speak or like are afraid they're going to make a mistake or say the wrong thing. And I think that actually is, I don't want to overstate it. I'm not saying everyone on the left or every organization at all times is doing this, but I think it, it is a problem. And it's like, a, I don't think people are quite realizing where a lot of ordinary working people just don't see themselves in these kinds of organizations. Um, mm -hmm. It's a, it's almost a very like Puritan lifestyle. And like, I mean, you mentioned the Mizaki article and, you know, for people that don't know, you know, I mean, just talked about like how he created this, you know, bowling league thing. And like part of the draw was like people went there and they got fucked up and everyone was fucking each other. And like, mm -hmm. it was really fun. And like, it was kind of an important organizing tool, but I could just imagine like doing, trying to do that in a left space and like, Again, I can only, I keep thinking of the word Puritan, just like this very like anti-fun, don't make it <laughs> no, joke, them, and like, it's it, a problem. It really is a fun, problem. They politicize the fun and everything yeah. they do is a political act of rebellion to the point mm -hmm. where, you know, it's kind of what Norm was talking about with gooning, which again, I'm Jesus not Christ. very excited <laughs> that, you know what really, I mean, you're joking, me and Tucson were joking about that, I was like, you know what pissed me off about? Or I was talking to Gene Bozlan about this. I was like, it's not that the clip went viral, that everybody was afraid to give us props. I was fucked up. <laughs> they were like, this is because you're trying to make this thing that isn't political at all a revolutionary act. It's like, look, dude, if you want to slap ham for 24 to 48 hours, that's not a that's not politics. That's amazing and painful, but it's not politics. Mm. Right. And that to me is where you're talking about, Paul, where now these exploits that are just kind of wild stories of a handful of people. And it's kind of what regular ass people do. You're hanging out all the time, you know, going out and having a good time. Um, it can just be part of what you do. But that's back to what you know, when Varn is on here. We always talk about this. We need to have socialists. Uh, bowling leagues and yeah. and little league baseball and and stuff like that, but that that almost seems like it's foreign for for so many people. Well, you know, I, I just like on that, like I I want to add like you know just a couple things because like this was a, a union that was very much like class where these were like normal people in it, but a lot of the organizers um, were young people um, who like might have might not not have been southerners, right? They brought like might have even been wealthy, right? Um, and they brought them into these, you know, small rural communities. And I think that, you know, a lot of the members had a lot of fun with getting, you know, sort of offending the sensibilities of these, you know, college educated kids who, you know, were very committed to this kind of thing, um, you know, but, you know, in, in a nice kind of like teasing way. Um, I, I'll tell you, I don't understand how anyone could be shocked by it. Um, a food like grits but like you know there's a funny story about a northerner coming by and being very freaked out by this food that they were eating and things like that and they you know razzed them and, and you know fucked around with them um and you know i i could just i i can't i could imagine um some of the things that they got into being uh, uh described as quote unquote like problematic 
if you were to have like a similar movement today and we were sending like young socialists from LA, New York, Philly, wherever, right? Austin, right? I'll include us here. Um, you know, to these these communities that people are like, oh, well, I went there and it was, I, I really believe in them, but like, oh, you know, their mannerisms were bad or all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they had similar kind of social conventions there, things that you're not supposed to say or you're not supposed to do. I mean, it's the, 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 20, the 30s and 40s, right? We know the culture at that time. Um, uh, and you know, what I, what I think was really notable about the STFU is they're like, yeah, well, if you want to <laughs> fight with us, you got to be one of us basically. And, uh, just sort of, you know, expose these people to a different way of living, a different way of talking, a different way of being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there would be some struggles, um, with some folks, uh, to be able to do that if we had some of our major left organizations sending organizers into any part of the, the country that's not, you know, quote unquote, the coast or whatnot. Um, yeah. That the comment on the screen, David, is for you. <laughs> if you eat if you eat dusty ass quinoa and hate grits, you might be a racist. So. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, right? That's that's a fair assessment. Paul, being that your father is actually from the Caribbean, mm-hmm. do you eat grits? I do yeah, but not because of him. He <laughs> <laughs> he he was not a fan of it. I mean, I don't I don't think he really ate it much. For me now, boy. <laughs> <laughs> but I eat a lot of fish, you know, and seafood and all that because of him. But yeah, Grits, I don't think he's ever ate it much. I don't know what his opinions are of it, to be honest. I, he would probably sound like a, a MAGA dude if someone put Grits in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> Take this inward food away from me. There's a boy, 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 boy. Yes, everyone from the Caribbean talks. Right, the same. everyone from Jamaica. Right, right. Everybody is Jamaican. <laughs> All the Haitians on the show, Jamaican. Oh shit! Speaking <laughs> of Haitians, it's everyone's favorite Haitian lady, M. Toussaint. Hello, hello. Toussaint, I'm, ass- I'm assuming you've never had grits in your life because you are Haitian and live in New York. Yeah. No, we have grits in Haiti. I, I don't believe anyone in New York n- makes grits. It's um, it's called Maimula in uh in Creole. We do have grits. It's grit like. No, it's grits. So if I went to your mama house and she'd have a, a thing of the instant grits, or is she gonna have a thing of the male male? <laughs> yeah. What's she's gonna have? It's not going to be instant. Oh, <laughs> oh, she's got to take it that way, huh? Yeah. Jesus. Gotta go a long way. Jesus, walking around with the basket on the head. Getting <laughs> real National Geographic in the Tucson household. <laughs> well, look. I don't know what takes place in your brain? <laughs> Racism. <laughs> <laughs> um, Paul has to go. David, thank you, uh, and Paul, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Uh, wherever you're watching the show or listening to the show, there's links in the description to David's article, and I'm hoping that we can get Paul back on and talk about his article soon. Yeah, I have another one coming out tomorrow, too, I think. We'll oh, be of interest. Oh, God, you need to just chill out. Just go do normal <laughs> shit. Stop writing so much. You people make me feel like I don't do enough with my life. Thank you guys so much. Well, just really fast before I go, um, just want to let people know uh, the folks at Working People's Pod mm-hmm. are doing a fundraiser right now for um, the the folks, the families in East Palestine. Um, so that's on their YouTube channel. I'm going to be on with some really great 
folks, I think around four Eastern, three Central. Uh, so if you didn't get enough of me today, once you're finished here, pop over to the Working People's Pod. Uh, they're doing a 12 hour live stream raising money for the folks in East Palestine. So just feed them. Feed them. We're feeding you more Griscom. Just force feeding. David, take care, man. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks, friend. Take care, David. Yeah, peace. Tucson. Yeah, man. I like your uh, patriotic shirt today. Oh. <laughs> um, Ben Ben Burgess is coming over in a little bit. All right, we get to see Ben's arm. No, he's he'll be he'll be here after the show. I think we're gonna go to Tijuana. Okay. Me and Ben never ventured north while he was here. And since me and Shaka Kani have been going, and me and Kenzo went, and me and Alex Michelle, the director of uh, Kayfabe, went. Mm-hmm. So I told Ben, I was like, dude, you have to you have to go to TJ. So he's all excited to go to TJ. Nice. Um, I did call him last night, and we had a long talk about the border weight. Which is insane right now. It's like three hours if you leave at three in the morning. That's crazy. It is crazy. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right on a Saturday. Did you watch any of the show? I did. I watched most of it. Um, what do you think? Awesome. <laughs> Who knew being in the union was so much fun? You get shot at. <laughs> people's wives bowling. I do I do want to start the show with this our favorite rapper mm-hmm. has a new video so again if you guys this is what we do in the champagne room so the first hour of the show mm-hmm. is, is is for the viewing audience I hate people say they put everything behind a paywall now no we don't. Uh, the first hour is always free. This is now the champagne room. Uh, should I even play the champagne room music? You know what? Let's let's do that. We never. Yeah, do let's do it. Let's do that right there. This is now we're entering the champagne room. Champagne every night. It is. A, is it a Bud Light or a top shelf Scotch or other liquor? What is their drink selection like? Champagne every night. Would you want to sit in a club with a frumpy recluse with a bad attitude? So here are the ways to identify a whale. With these elements in place, you create your ultimate signature atmosphere also known as the champagne room. I just, uh, um, I just want to, to read this comment because this is the greatest land acknowledgement I've ever read. This is from Kushluk, and this is such a champagne room comment. I'd like to acknowledge we are holding this live stream on stolen alt-right gamer bro land. This is true. Mm. 
Welcome to the Champagne Room, everyone. Also, welcome to the Twitch viewing audience. <laughs> Marcus raided. We still have a good handful of people uh, still here from Twitch. So Sweet. this is what we do. Sometimes we have serious conversations, T and I. Um, but <laughs> don't white explain. <laughs> so the conversations in the Champagne Room. Sometimes I get serious. Sometimes people make fun of me because I get too serious and then depress the shit out of everybody. I'm going to try not to depress the shit out of everybody. Um, but before we even talk about anything, our favorite rapper has a new video. He does. No, not that not that rapper. Like our literal favorite rapper. <laughs> We're not saying that in jest. Um, there's a female rapper... She's doing something I find so interesting, right? When people say you don't need a budget, you don't need crazy effects and everything, this is literally just a camera phone and ingenuity. What this young lady is doing is so interesting and funny and cool. I was telling Toussaint, she, to me, is the, in a new version of um, Miss Elliot really clever um i gotta love what she's doing i don't understand it but that's even why it's it's cooler so <laughs> and i don't know her name don't you know, know her name son? no no i can't tell by her face okay so here's is it I don't know what the point is, but this is a take on Pulp Fiction. Is it? Yeah. Oh, that's right. With the. Yeah, it's the it's the um, what do you call it? The the suitcase, the briefcase. What's in the briefcase? That the whole movie's about. That's clever. So, yeah. Right. It. I I want to know if they actually. I want to know if they actually make the pound cake. Because what's funny is, I think I told you they had another video where they were both in the bed with the matching booties. Mm-hmm. And then Meemaw pulls out the mixer. Right. And that's the big thing. It's always the mixer. The hand mixer. Like, she's ready to go. They're going to show you how to do it. But they never show you how to do it. Love it. Love it. Love it. The literal favorite rapper. Yes. Um, our when we oh, say favorite, other the other rapper, oh, Jesus. the other rapper is just. What can you say? Um, he went on a bit of a rant, he and did. he let people live stream it. He did. Why? Is that hubris? I just feel like 
if if he asks you to live stream it, you say no. And we have we have the footage, right? We do. Is is it in our list? Did you send it to me? You sent it to me. I sent you Kanye talking about his Jewish doctor. Ah, yeah, that was a short clip. <laughs> that was a short clip. That's my favorite Kanye clip. He he was a Jew. Where <laughs> Kanye turns into a Jew when he talks about the Jewish doctor. He turns into a Okay, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. Um Kanye West has a new album out. And I don't think it dropped just yet. His daughter's on it apparently. Did you know North. that? North. He has two daughters? Uh, I think Saint is a girl. One of them's a girl. No, Saint is a boy, I think. He is another girl. There's little ones that what? apparently North doesn't talk to. What? <laughs> they're younger siblings. But they're all, are they all from Kim Kardashian? Yeah. Why does she talk to the her? I'm so confused. She doesn't talk. She doesn't have any interest in her younger siblings. Is that what happens when Kanye is your dad? Maybe. You just grow up to be an unbelievable doucher. She's known for being unapologetically honest. What? That that means asshole. Kim is trying to get her to temper that, or just deliver it nicely. Anyone that keeps it real, it, this is this is the person to watch out for. And this person exists in every racial group, every social strata. The um, I, I keep it real. I'm just honest. Mm-hmm. And I don't have time for any drama. Mm. All you are is drama and you're an asshole. Because yeah. you are so much drama. I'm just being honest. You know, hey, just live if if people that also the same person, they live their own truth. I live in my truth. <laughs> I'm speaking my truth. If you're speaking your truth, if you're unapologetically honest, if you're just keeping it real, and you don't want drama, that's the cocktail for douchebaggery. Yeah. Right? Winspear says, don't trust a toddler with fuck you money. Well, you just described Kanye West. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're like, hey, just being honest here, whatever you're going to say after that is going to be an insult. Can I be honest with you right now? No. <laughs> Talk to me like you do those white people at work. Ooh. I need you to not be honest with me right now. <laughs> Talk to me like I'm your male boss. There you go. Don't don't be honest with me, okay? Because whatever you're gonna say is going to be a massive insult. Right? It's true. Um can we be frank for a second here? 
<laughs> All right, Frank. <laughs> I really hope you Leslie Nielsen someone like that. <laughs> Like you can be honest without being an asshole. I, I, and you know we're all we've all been the asshole, right? Yeah. We've all been a little too honest. I am single for a reason. Mm. Right. (laughs) Right. A little too honest sometimes, and you learn. But Kanye is living his truth. Yes, he is. And that means he's living a lie. It does. He's just living somewhere, and it's just fantasy land. Uh, He loves it there. And when you are famous, and what, again, we've talked about this before on the show. And let's bring this up again, because I think this is also a sad state of where we are when it comes to cultural production of anything new and interesting. Um, I never grew up in a world where f- rappers that are literally older than me, Kanye's like a year older, I think, um, are still relevant. Right. Especially when without a movie career or a TV show. Kanye's never had a TV show. No. And I, if he's been in a movie, it's just been probably as himself. Yeah. So here's a guy that literally is famous because of his music for one and controversy for two. Now more so controversy than maybe the music. And we can say that controversy starts when George Bush doesn't like black people during a massive fundraising event for uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, and that's the Kanye that people look at as some sort of savior of black America. Like that was the thing that had to be said to wake people up. Mm. And whenever I think about that, whenever I, I hear people try to defend Kanye and go, you know, that's my Kanye. I'm like, well, fuck, he needed to say that for you to get all fired up? Like, really? <laughs> you really thought before that George Bush and Richard Pryor were like fucking hanging out at Camp David? Doing the hand bone shit and fucking like, what did you think? Okay. Was, who did who do you think Kanye and who do you think George Bush was? Sure. And what happens when Kanye does blow up during the the era of the first black president? All he does is brag about how adjacent to power he always is. Yes. And the president called him an idiot. Which one? Because he's been around for a few. That's Bush, true. Right? Well, Obama called him an idiot. And then he went to go be friends with Donald Trump. And everyone yeah. acts like, well, this is Kanye during a mental break. And when Kanye said George Bush doesn't like black people with a very frightened look on his face and then said he was going to donate a bunch of money, we all knew that this was the leader that we needed. He wasn't... The, he was... He was the hero Gotham needed. I was like, man, you, 
wherever you live, brother, it sucks because I've never needed Kanye for anything. Mm. Unless he was my neighbor, maybe, and like, oh, you need like garlic. We don't have any, and I really wanted to make this dish. Need some sugar. I feel like Kanye West would not have real sugar at his house. That's probably true. Right? That's why I asked for garlic, because I knew you like, hey, Kim, uh, (laughs) guys got any sugar? No? No, no real sugar? Okay, got it. Thanks. Thanks. Mm. Yeah, it's not going to happen at Kanye's house. Garlic, they're going to have garlic. They're definitely going to have garlic. They're going to have ginger at their house. Mm-hmm. They're going to have fancy teas. Fancy teas. Fancy teas. Sugar, maybe not. Uh, David David Russell says, mental illness is no excuse. Seems like yay is just a loser. <laughs> He's he. You get to live in a world when you're when you're that famous. You get to live in a world where everything you say, there's always someone there to be like, mm-hmm. exactly. And we call them yes, but people say yes men. It's like yeah, those people go away real quick though. When you're not famous anymore, mm-hmm. the hangers on. But I'm talking about people like managers and agents and people that own brands that make money off this gentleman and record company execs like there's a lot of people in the halls of power that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so kanye it's I don't, what is he doing at his house are these his neighbors or like people he found in the vip room they look like VIP room people. They look like people that, like, all of them look like they blew someone to get in there. They're all kind of pretty and ready for a camera. Yeah. So I really feel like these are, like, the people that are in the VIP room that know someone that knows someone that knows someone. The LA VIP room people, right? Like, my best friend is the cousin of Common's assistant's hairdresser. And they got me in. Like that. like that level of association. Working those connections. Right? Um, somebody called him Conway West. I wish Kanye West did a, a whole album of Conway Twitty covers. I would buy that. <laughs> that would be the greatest. <laughs> it's been a long time. I love Kanye Twitty. Do you? No one can sing a song about fucking somebody else's girlfriend like Kanye Twitty and make you feel bad for him. Hello, she- darling. <laughs> when you when I hear Conway Twitty. Or if I see a video of him with that fucking dude, knowing he got so much Murray's in his shit. Squeezing his fat ass into that fucking sequin ass powder blue suit. Talking about banging somebody's wife. I'm like, Conway Twitty is a dirty motherfucker. (laughs) 
Someone says his hair fucking rules. Hell yeah, it does. Love Conway Twitty. If you don't like Conway Twitty, then don't tell me about gangster rap or any kind of rap you listen to because you just you can listen to them both. It's okay. <laughs> Dusty said dude was lucky to have that voice. Yeah, he's a goofy looking dude. Always talking about running up in somebody's house. Mm. <sighs> Kanye duet with Loretta Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> that that version of country is like my favorite shit. Right. Between me doing this show, my neighbor not knowing what I do, and like blaring old ass Hank Williams, I'm sure my neighbor thinks that I'm some sort of weirdo. You got the shirt. <laughs> Hello, darling. <laughs> I don't know, my neighbor, he blasts country and he wears country shirts. We're in Mexico. Oh, that is like the thing to wear down here. Because remember, I told you cows, I had I made a video for, for my young son so he can see how crazy it is out here. Because sometimes like I don't have an animal because there's so many just stray dogs that roam around here. Mm-hmm. So I like dog treats and stuff in my car. And sometimes I'll like throw some dog treats out and just like play with dogs <laughs> when I'm on my way home. Jeez. And so I was doing that. There was like a husky was loose, big ass husky. So I was like feeding this husky and playing with the husky. And then all of a sudden, some horses just rode by. <laughs> so you like, want to go play with the horses? Not nah, the horses be like some thug shit, man. They some thug shit. So here's Kanye West. Conway West is is the album that we want. That's the one that people want. So Con, Kanye Way is yelling about Zionists and hospitals. Colonizers, nigga. The French own 80% of the banks in Africa, nigga. That's why I just met with MBS, nigga, head of Saudi. Nigga, we don't have to... And what did you do at the meeting? Did you did you yell at him like this? All coke and shit? About banks? Did you... <laughs> Can you imagine Kanye? <laughs> Is his meeting with MBS like my meeting with Jack Dorsey? Oh, imaginary. No, no. I was in a room with him. I said hi. That's true, you out. did. So that was my extent of Jack Dorsey. I like Jack Dorsey. Um, he seemed friendly, but still. I Hello. <laughs> I, I didn't know who he was. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> he's that kind of guy too. Yeah, he's just a smiley white man. Well, you you can tell when someone's important because they have that look like I don't really have to do shit. Yeah. Is Kanye a cokehead? This seems cokey, but it also seems manic. Yes. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. So I don't know. I I wouldn't doubt it. Like, uh, I mean, just listen. About it, this shit. We, okay, it's sixty million us in America, sixty million Jews in the world. Fifty percent of our like really? Not true. <laughs> not where, true. Where where do you get that statistic? Just curly things is where he gets his statistics. Where, where do you get that statistic <laughs> from? 
I'm gonna just start saying random shit. I'm gonna just go around and start saying random shit to people. The 60 million black people in New York today. Mm-hmm. All of them in projects. They all live in projects. You know how many Jews there are? Seven. Well, somebody says he gets his stats from Nick Fuentes. Jesus Christ. There's this wonderful thing in your pocket called the internet. Yeah. And uh, if you're going to say crazy shit like that, you go, oh, let me just double check before I do this rant. Give me one second, guys. I'll rant in a minute. Hold on, guys. Just give me a second. Black people in the U.S. Like, that's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. This guy's not going to check the internet. This guy's wearing the crest of Germany. But uh, do you understand that this barbershop logic? <laughs> g- g- you All you have to do is be like, that's not true. Nigga, what are you looking up? I don't know. The st- stats? Just there's a, The Census Bureau has statistics. <laughs> right. They not counting half breeds, nigga. What? You're not counting half three. <laughs> they didn't count Paul. <laughs> <laughs> My nigga counts. <laughs> I fucks with you, Paul. You, you count. You count. Nigga, I'm counting octoroons too, nigga. What? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Did Sean King count that 60 million? <laughs> I'm going to start a band called Barbershop Logic. Dude. Nigga, I'm counting Puerto Ricans. Nigga, what? Nigga, they just niggas that speak Spanish. Nigga, what? Count Dominicans. They just niggas that wear sandals. <laughs> is he talking about so no one is saying uh that's not correct because when you go unhinged like that and you just start mm-hmm. saying words and names mm-hmm. nigga, i went with mbs and and nick what mbs nigga six million, i was there's 60 million saudis in the peninsula <laughs> peninsula <laughs> <laughs> I'm counting Aussies because they just white Irish. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. It would have been better if he was like, there's 60 million niggas with good hair in America. (laughs) Just like somebody said we have to count Varn. We have to count. <laughs> okay, I'm Varn. I fucked with him. It's my next race. Sean King, nigga, NBS told me that it was niggas, but not really. Kushlik <laughs> <laughs> says Kendi Minkin. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is when this is when Ibrahim X Kendi descends from the the heavens. <laughs> <laughs> into right Kanye's now. room, like doo-loo-loo-loo, doo-loo-loo. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Kendi uh, descends from the sky and he goes, "No, my brother." <laughs> <laughs> Basically, 
<laughs> That's exactly what happens. Kushlik says I'm summoning you. <laughs> 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 so again, this is the champagne room. There's a lot of inside jokes we have in the champagne room. And one of them is if you say Ibrahim X. Kendi's name, it's like Candyman. So he is the kid, the candy man can. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kanye talking about he met MBS. I think Kanye saw any brown man with a beard. Oh, man. <laughs> he saw Drake. He saw Drake. He thought Drake was MBS. <laughs> nigga, I was at MBS. He lived next door to me. Nigga, what? He lived in Calabasas. <laughs> nigga, MBS. MBS dropping fire 12 bar verses, nigga. <laughs> yes. Fucking dropped a hot 16 on me and then fucking went to a Toronto Raptor game. I know MBS. <laughs> what are you talking about? I meet with him all the time. Uh, Kanye, that's just Drake. Kanye. <laughs> Drake in a very racist Halloween costume, Kanye. <laughs> it's Drake in a scarf. <laughs> Not even one of those Palestinians. <laughs> just a regular, just a regular scarf. scarf. <laughs> just Drake in a scarf. <laughs> so Kanye gets to go on these unhinged rants and uh, and what's funny is that someone's going to do a think piece about this mm. there's going to be shows that talk about how Kanye is like danger give a fuck what he says does anyone take this a-hole seriously like really some people do it took Donald Trump 40 years to to be relevant and to get a show where he was the king of the world to become president. 40 years. He played the long game and he won. Mm-hmm. He attempted to run for president like Kanye West and everybody laughed it off in what, 2000? Yep. As, as part of the libertarian adjacent party. So if you're really afraid that Kanye West is attempting to play the long game, how serious are we taking him? Again, Donald Trump, unlike Kanye West, his media appearances were smaller and less controversial. He stayed behind the scenes for the majority of his 40 years. When I say behind the scenes, I mean, there's definitely going to show up. There's going to be a piece about him being this rich playboy and how he's got all this money. He's got casinos. He's got airplanes. He's got everything. Mm-hmm. He's uncircumcised. No, my brother. Hey. Because <laughs> of, of the hospitals. <laughs> well, cases. Yeah. We don't own no hospitals, man. We don't own no hospitals. This is Kanye talking about the private ownership of hospitals. Death is abortion. 25% of us go to prison. Raise one hand if you don't know one nigga in prison, one nigga got locked up, and one nigga poor. Wait, raise your hand if you don't know. Did somebody go, ooh? 
Like that was cool. That was mic drop. <laughs> what? He made it so that nobody could raise their hand. But that was that somebody said, oof. I would have raised my hand anyway and spoke at the same time. Like, hey, this sounds like bullshit. <laughs> Instead, they're like, this MF spitting. Oh, my God. Someone says, how many hospitals has he built? Well, you are asking trick questions. You don't know one person got abortion. I got abortion. Now, now, take- I got abortion. <laughs> no. Fuck yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> no one person I had an abortion. One person yeah. I got an abortion. Barbershop logic feature mic drop. Yes, Matt Gilbert. That is Kanye's new band. That's not a bad name for a rapper, Mike Drop. <laughs> not horrible. Dude, he's, it's, hey. Hey. This is where the Kanye speech gets into the most beautiful, most beautiful piece of nonsensical fuckery. Like, I love this so much. That if he was there, I would have hugged him. I would have mm-hmm. hugged him, and uh, I would have been like, "This, you, my friend, have officially. <laughs> you're the mayor of Crazy Town. You've outdone yourself. You've outdone yourself, Kanye. Watch this. Now I tell you, if it was in a Jewish month on Friday with no fucking everybody raised their hands. So, but wait, wait, wait a second. But who got? But wait, wait, wait a second. Who make the hospitals though? What? <laughs> Catholics? <laughs> I don't know. Is he going for Catholics now? No. Uh, what is? <laughs> right. <laughs> like serious, dude. Uh, Kanye, what is the state? Maybe sometimes private business, investment capital. What kind of hospitals are we talking about? Are we talking about the county hospital or like Cedar Sinai universities? Mm. Who, who got the hospitals? These are Zionists, nigga. Yes, hospitals are part of the Zionist plot to destroy brown America. <laughs> Somebody says the Shriners. <laughs> <laughs> Strong says he's no longer talking like white pride, Kanye. Hello, darling. <laughs> Have you missed me? It's been a long time. The Knights Templar make hospitals. These Zionists want to put me in a hospital. <laughs> okay, here it comes. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus Christ, Hitler, yay! that's all you need right to make the world a better Jesus Hitler Kanye trifecta what do you mean (laughs) right (laughs) healthcare is a science 
<laughs> this is also why there's no sugar at Kanye's house. <laughs> right? He could stand to get some sugar then. Dude, <laughs> you try to go there, you're like, uh, like it's Kim knocking on your door, right? Jason, yeah. man, I just want to make the kids Kool-Aid. And then part of me is saying, it's not a porn, it's real life, just give her the sugar. It's not a porn, it's real life, just give her the sugar. <laughs> I would talk to Kim Kardashian like dudes be talking to women at the strip club. Kim, why are you with them? You're better than this. <laughs> oh, God. She ain't with him. That's right. She's she's out. She got free. She's free. So can I meet Kim Kardashian in L.A. and date her? No. God damn it. You got too many kids for that. The, she got too many kids for that. Maybe she would look at me as like, oh, you're the father figure that they need. You're around Kanye's age and size. You wear country flat shirts. <laughs> You're not afraid to say controversial things. <laughs> Can you imagine if Kim Kardashian had good politics and she used her stuff for good? I mean, she kind of does. She did get a few women out of prison that were in on some trumped-up charges. She tried, yeah. She did? No, she did. She tries. Oh, you said she tries. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Remember when she was going to go to law school and then she like got the syllabus and was like, ew. <laughs> what is this reading? <laughs> Forget adding yourselves as heads to the Marxist flag. Add yourself to the Hitler trinity. <laughs> like the dude, the Shining Path dude added himself to the Marxist flag. He just threw himself on there. Kanye. Party. Sponsor that, nigga. Bring the sponsorships today. Who said yeah? Just, just, it's sad. Who said yeah? This is the same person that yelled out, I had an abortion. Mm, I guess so, right? He doesn't even know these people. Who? I told you I I dated a woman. We went on a few dates. And she was like a big Kanye fan. And she was a Kanye defender. To the point where it would get like. The conversations get a little bit like you can't be serious. Mm. I kind of want to like hit her up and play this. Damn. <laughs> hey, haven't heard from you in a while. Hope you're fine. Here. Here. This is your God. I mean, this is this is your god. This is why they call it a cult. <laughs> to be a Kanye fan at this point, they call it a cult. You're in a cult. Because there's gonna be some niggas that feel exactly like me. I don't give a fuck, nigga. I'm seven. Th- I don't give a fuck about life or death. I, I get visitation with my kids. I ain't gonna say so. Uh, why is Kanye West? A literal billionaire trying to talk like me. (laughs) Like, 
I just drove about 1,200 miles to hang out with my kid for a very short amount of time. And Kanye is talking like me and him are the same dude. We're not. <laughs> what are you? What? And why are you yelling about this in front of strangers? These are not things you should be yelling. This is why I don't think it's just cocaine. These niggas is colonizers, nigga. The French own 80% of the banks in Africa, nigga. 80%. Who is he talking about? France. He means like French as in like just all French people or France as a country or I guess the rich French people, uh bankers. Jeez. <laughs> like y'all gotta stop letting Kanye just do this with a camera in front of him. And you know what look. The full rant is like fifteen minutes. Yeah. And he streamed it, right? Yeah, he had it streamed. At one point, it seemed like he was going to throw the person streaming out. Mm-hmm. But it was the person next to the person streaming. It was a man. It's the next to the man. It's the next to the man to call my piccolo player. Motherfucker, please stand up. Okay. Only real OGs know that joke. It's an old Robin Harris joke. <laughs> About how Tim, the late Tim Tiny Lester, he said, took him to a ghetto church in South Central. <laughs> Oh, God. And he said the church was so ghetto it didn't have an organ player, it had a piccolo player. I remember this show. And he said a piccolo player was trash. <laughs> and he said somebody he said the church was so ghetto. Somebody yelled out, Piccolo player's a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> And then he said the preacher um, then stopped the church band and choir and then said, and they said that the preacher was like a thug. So he said the preacher yelled out, man, call my pickle player, motherfucker, please stand up. And he said, everybody just sat still. Mm-hmm. And he said, Tiny looked over and said, don't say shit. That nigga got a gun. He's shooting motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> So the preacher goes, Well, the man that's sitting next to the man that called my piccolo player, motherfucker, please stand up. He said, Everybody's still standing still. And you know, it goes on for a while. Yeah. Your man is next to the man. It's next to the man. (laughs) It's next to the man. But look up Robin Harris, piccolo player. I played that way too many times at 11 years old my mom bought that cassette (laughs) and I took the cassette out of her car that's what I used to do on the way to school and I took the cassette out of her car and just played it just ad nauseum in my room and then would do Robin Harris impersonations in school and here we are today tiny bald Jason (laughs) at 11 years old uh huh Oh yeah, steady diet of that, and like Eddie Murphy raw and delirious. It's a different time. 
different time. <laughs> the 80s and 90s were a different time. That's true. Strong says you played it on the show once. I did, and that show got pulled down. Mm-hmm. I believe um, Paramount or Warner owns it, and they pulled it. Those MFers. Um, we have more. We have, but can, can, what? How do you guys feel about this? Right. Oh, somebody's mad at you for mocking Kanye's mild, not even mild, his kind of skewed understanding of French colonialism. You can be mad. That's fine. I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do about that. Eighty percent of the banks. What statistic did he yell out? Also, the majority of black people die in abortions. Fifty <laughs> percent. Was it fifty percent? That's the stat. I was. I was hoping that was part of the clip. I was like, "Where are you kidding? How do you? What? Huh?" What? How does that even work? I was like, dude, I don't get it, brother. I'm not getting it. Between Kanye West and Charleston White. Oh, man. Look, after watching Kanye West, I think we have to watch this to cleanse our palates. Oh, boy. Um, there was like one thing I found. What was the church, what was the first church video we watched? Was that when you weren't on the show and we watched the Japanese praise break? It was Japanese praise break. Ever since Japanese praise break, I get a good amount of church stuff. Also, I get a good amount of funeral revelations. I don't know if that's a new thing, and I don't know if that's fake. Do you think the funeral revelations are real? Because there is a lot more live streaming of funerals. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, the funeral revelations are just like, I get it. You're upset. But is it really the time? Just, have you seen the one where the girl is going... My mama didn't fuck with you because you was talking shit about her when she was alive. I was like, God. <laughs> See, you want to do that at a funeral. Kind of. But you don't. It's just not the time. It's just not the time. And I don't know. I don't know. At your funeral... I promise I won't do that. Thank you. It's good to have that promise in in uh, this is in the bank. <laughs> this is not a funeral. This is just a church. And at this church, um, they are shouting, which is when the Holy Spirit hits you and takes over your feet. Um, and it just it just it runs through your body, right? Um, you know about shouting, right, Tucson? You've been to mm-hmm. a church that shouts. I've seen it. 
So I'm going to play this video a couple times. It's not very long, but just look at a different person each time and you will discover so much in this video. So check it out. Oh! Ah! Someone says I get to have sex. Oh my gosh. No, my hey, shut up. <laughs> it's hard to see it, but there's a pair of glasses on the stage. The woman shouted her wig off. She sure did. And then she, <laughs> the bass player kicks it out of the way. Let me take so care watch, of this watch, watch this, watch this, watch this. That's enough. I got it. Just dab on him. Look at the face player. Look at the face player. <laughs> she doesn't lose the groove. Nick. That nigga with the tambourine. Mmm. Someone says church revival, punk mosh pit, same things. Yes. Sure. Yes. My God. What do you think about the wigs? So what's even what's more fucked up is the woman next to the woman whose wig fell off. Mm-hmm. She starts shaking her head head hella hard. Be like, aha. And you realize they're all wearing wigs? They're they're all wearing wigs. Look, look. Look at this showing off. Look at these two. Showing off. And look at this. She had to come in there and show off some more. Dab on him, me, Ma. <laughs> if your grandma ain't never dabbed on Satan, have you ever really been to church? I guess you have not. <laughs> I guess you have not. Dab on Satan. Has your grandma ever dabbed on the competition? And that lady, she did this dance move. She st- she stood on her ankles. <laughs> she stood on her ankles, man, and then hopped up and he kept on dancing some more. <laughs> Tucson. This is an old clip. 
I've seen this before a while back. I think I don't know if we showed this on the show, but it's one of my favorite clips. It's this clip where a news crew is eating Cajun food. And I think it's in L.A. And the newscaster white guy takes a bite of this food and and his reaction is hilarious. And here too? Mm-hmm. Dirty rice. Dirty rice, shrimp alfredo, smothered turkey leg. I'm almost rolling. <laughs> rice? <laughs> what? <laughs> Someone says I didn't know this was possible. <laughs> now I'm going to show you a video that explains why this man dropped his fork. Damn, these niggers can cook. That in that one bite. That man is now about to go try to abolish everything. The police, slavery, other white people like him. He's about to abolish everything. Mm. Black soap finna be in the house. Oh my gosh. Dad, why do you have Jet Magazine all over the place? Jet Magazine. Do you leave your wife after that? I don't know. Wow. <laughs> Looking and acting like Joe Biden. <laughs> I think wow. Joe Biden's too gone to even know he was eating. The spirit of John Brown entered his body. <laughs> Dad, Amazon delivered your dashiki. no son what I'm saying is white fragility doesn't go far enough (laughs) Abraham X Kennedy doesn't go far enough it's not far enough what we need is radical liberation that man is giving out reparations to every black person he sees only if they're in the kitchen though we need a redistribution of wealth to Negroes who can cook. <laughs> He's just walking in all over South Central. Just going in chicken joints. <laughs> like Mr. Beast. <laughs> Taking out home loans to add extra fryers. <laughs> Oh shit. One bite changed this man's entire outlook on race politics. One fucking bite. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why. Did you see the video, Tucson, of why this man is? Did I show you that video? I believe I did. Um,. Hold on, let me find it. Um, I really hope I sent it to you. Oh, please tell me I sent it to you. I sent you so much shit. You did. I gotta stop. 
Side note, why did you say I can't get with Tatiana Ali? Because she looks like your daughter. Wow. Again. No, my brother. That is gross. And she's not Asian. She's Indian. No, she's not. She's something. She's something. Yeah, she sure is something. (laughs) Why are you hating on the the, me and Tatiana Ali? That way, if me and Tatiana Ali and my daughter all walked around, they'd be like, oh, that's obviously your mother. No, God. No? Um, This is why this man took that bite and understood everything. He understood why his life was a lie. I don't know who this woman is. Um... And I don't know why this was done. A raw chicken thigh. I'm going to show you how to roast it. Really just take the chicken, put it on a baking tray, salt. Just touching the salt with all that raw chicken hand. Mm. Now, there was a cut there. She could have washed her hands. Let's just say for all intents and purposes, she washed her hands. This is a really nice looking kitchen. She's got a gas stove. Right? That's that's yeah. a nice kitchen. You can make some good shit in that kitchen. So she wants to show you her quick recipe. She lightly salts the chicken. That's it. I'm preheating my oven to 425. It usually takes like 50 minutes to an hour. So I'll check back soon. It's been like 45 minutes. Let's take it out. <laughs> We're going to put it back in for a little longer because it's not done. <laughs> chicken that you got today on Instagram looked bitten in the raw. It really did. It was, it was, was coming out of it. Was, oh. What do these people do for a living to have these houses or do they just live with their parents? To have these houses with these kitchens they don't know how to use. Yeah. Are they just going into Airbnbs and just doing this shit for the views and they go back to their hovel in fucking Highland Park or... Do they really live in? Because this is a pretty barren looking kitchen. So either you just moved everything off your kitchen counter for the video or you just live that barren of a life. Now, the way the chicken was seasoned, I understand there's not a lot of stuff on the counter, right? But most people just have stuff, right? Chips, fruit, a vegetable or two. Some bullshit. Someone says rental. I wouldn't doubt it was a rental. <laughs> Kushler says 49 million Jews, 49 million factory farm chickens killed every week. You do the math. <laughs> Someone says 50 minutes for a chicken thigh. What you guys didn't notice was the chicken was frozen. Oh, she started from frozen. That chicken was frozen. Because I did not understand any of what happened. (laughs) Someone says, who has a chicken thigh as a snack? This is the truth. Just one. (laughs) I'm just making one at a time. Just one. Just one 
frozen chicken thigh and leg. Listen, maybe the last time I cooked my chicken, it was a little bit underdone, okay? But... Rare chicken is deadly. Rare chicken is deadly. I repeat, rare chicken is deadly. I'll live. Let's see. Someone commented on my last video that looks like the chicken is still clucking. <laughs> okay, 172. It's like basically how it was cooked yesterday. You gotta make sure the, uh, the thermometer goes all the way in the it chicken. It did! Sure. Do you want me to check it again? You're known for your raw chicken. No, I'm not. That is not it. <laughs> I got a bad spot. Oh, God. That just looks gross. It really does. It looks like a science experiment. <laughs> rare chicken as opposed to common chicken. Jan Clements <laughs> has the green face throw up emoji. I think Jan Clements is from New Orleans. Yep. If Jan Clements is actually from New Orleans, this is like a crime. Is it a crime? <laughs> yes, it is. Like, this is so sad for her. She's about to start blaring Sade in the fucking <laughs> <laughs> I won't pretend <laughs> I can't hate you <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Logan says they said and white people back 200 years 200 years it's some caveman shit the <laughs> that's <doing>? true <laughs> <laughs> like life, raw chicken, if it doesn't kill you, will only make you stronger. <laughs> uh, here's hoping for her sake. Jesus. Someone says, how do you go through your life and not know how to use your stove? I don't know, but that thermometer is just filled with salmonella. Uh, that's in. That 175. Verified. Verified. This is Cook. Best part is obviously the skin. Ew. That <laughs> looks like a human skin. It does. Her and her, the reason why this place is so barren is because, much like the dude that was uh, a big fan of Larry Elder, there's just people in the basement. She might have people in the basement. She might have people in the basement. She I mean, might have cook- lampshades made out of faces. If you cook your chicken like that, you've taken a bite out of a person. She's bit that dude's penis, and not in a like cute, fun-loving way, but in a "no, I'm hungry" kind of way. No, I'm hungry. It's here, so am I. Yeah, yeah. Your your dick and this chicken skin looks exactly the same. So, what do you expect me to do, fucking Filbert? So good. Eat that skin. Disclaimer: I am not a chef. I just really love food. I know that I want a lot of protein, and I know that I want a lot of fat. So since chicken is relatively low fat, I just add some butter in. That was a scoop of butter. Chicken and butter. (laughs) Caleb says, I appreciate that Jason knows that they're loving penis bites. (laughs) Why didn't you just cook it with the butter? <laughs> that would have been better. 
These are good questions. That would have been so much better. I first thought it was like pineapples or something. But I've there was never a seen, whole pat of butter. I've never seen somebody take a pat of bubber, <laughs> bubber, <laughs> butter. She needs to stick to peanut butter. Poor Jan Clements again, just crying, bumping Sade. I can't hate you. <laughs> I have tried. Uh, uh. <laughs> 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 this is Clizzle says his stomach is bubbling. Must <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone wrote a comment that was watching the first hour. <laughs> <I won't forget. laughs> well, Lee, I hope you enjoy the first hour because by the time you get to hour two, we really go off the rails. <laughs> yes, we do. Someone said MFs raised on chicken nuggets. Oh, I can see that. I could see that. I could see that. How do you make those? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, so since we did that, I want to take that disgusting feeling out of your mouth. That's what she said. <laughs> she did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to take... <laughs> I want to take that out of your mouth and I want to show you something that should make you feel well. Should we should we end? We've been going for two and a half hours. Should we end now? We can end. Um we have to make people feel a little bit better, right? We'll end on an up note. On an up note? Okay. Uh, wait a minute. Let me make sure we're going to end on that up and up. Because there, there's just too much funny shit. Uh, two funny notes to end on. I knew you were going to go for two. <laughs> I knew you couldn't do one. I knew you couldn't do one. Because I kind of want to ask the relationship question. Oh my god. So leave the relationship one alone? Leave the relationship one. Leave that for Tuesday? Yeah. Okay. Um so I watch a lot of fight videos on on Instagram and, and YouTube and there's a lot of fight tutorial stuff. More so form steps, workout routines. Back in the day, if you were getting pushed around, it's kinda like that King of the Hill episode. Someone told you to go to the Y and take like a martial arts or boxing class or if you read like weird magazines um <laughs> like those like there's like ninja magazines and all these like martial arts magazines there'd always be a person excuse me advertising a fight video like i watch this video and for 49.99 i will turn you into an assassin in an hour and a half. Oh boy. 
And I know you didn't watch this. I'm sure you saw this. Like, I'm not watching this. I don't think I did watch this one. This video is like one of these videos where, uh, look, this is this is what's going to happen to you in a situation. This is what you need to have. This is how you defend yourself. And they always like hit their chest, right? Do shit like that. And they like do the slap thing where they like, you know, like Steven Seagal does it all the time. He slaps somebody upside the head and they act like the upside the head slap was like, oh my God, I'm disarmed now. Hmm. Right? So it's like, that was the thing. The, the punch to the, their own chest and then do that out there. And you're like, whoa. And like, see how quick I am? This right there. Right as I. And as somebody said in the comments, the eyes are the testicles of the face. Okay. So watch this. This man and me, we're in the same phases of our lives right now. The mustache phase of our life. We feel everybody is like us. So our self-defense techniques are going to be built around the way we defend ourselves. So check this out. I'm a smoker. A lot of people are smokers. Real quick, he's sticking the finger in the face, cigarette in the eye. <laughs> what? <laughs> He's not done. Boom. Automatic response. He snapped his head back. His entire body is open. Any strike you want. Okay? <laughs> Same thing with the. Did you see? Did you see? <laughs> Did you see? Chest punch. <laughs> Someone says fucking I just quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> cigarette in the eye. What you have to do is put a fucking cigarette out of the man's eye. <laughs> and look, everything's open. Oh yeah, you know what else is gonna be open? The jail cell. Cause you <laughs> have just committed a felony. <laughs> oh my god. My favorite part is this is the fingers going. Look at his fingers going. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Cigarette in the eye. The old cigarette in the eye trick. This to me is akin to the um, you don't want to rile me up. I whoop anybody. I don't care what you know. I don't care what martial art you know. Can you know MMA? You don't want to rile me. I'm like a barracuda possessed by a monkey. Jesus. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> monkey. How does that even work? You don't want to rile me, man, because I you fuck. You stepped me wrong. I fucking put a cigarette out in your eye, rip your testicles off, and then dangle them in front of you, and then hypnotize you, and then 
kicking the ass. And then. And then <laughs> you don't want a piece of me, brother. I am not afraid. But put the, I'll throw this cigarette in your face and mildly annoy you while distracting you quickly enough to punch you in the chest. I'm a lot smaller and it probably won't hurt that much. Bam, then I kick you in the knee. Hoping that your knee Previously injured. Previously injured. Hoping that your knee is a football injury. <laughs> Hoping that your whole football. Oh, I will tear your ACL, brother. Mm. I'll tear it all. Your ACL, your MCL, your ACLU. I'll tear it all, motherfucker. You don't want. You don't want to rile me, man. You don't want a piece of me. Do you see this mustache? You know what it means? I'm a certified pussy-eating motherfucker. I will fuck you up, man. That's what they say. Is that what they say? Yeah. Okay. If you've never been anywhere and seen that fight, instigate it. No. <laughs> no. Just go try to start it. Change. He's sticking a finger in your face. <laughs> right in the eyes. <laughs> he threw change. He threw change at him. He did. Coach, look, 39 million Jews in the United States and 39 million practicing Taekwondo athletes. You do the math. <laughs> Schmeckley says, your champagne room assignment is to instigate a fight and lose. <laughs> Everything this man is saying is going to get you murdered. Yeah, yeah. says pocket sand. For those that don't know pocket sand, that was Dale Gribble from King of the Hills. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> pocket, pocket sand. <laughs> <laughs> he threw change at that man. If you throw even a lit cigarette at somebody, change at somebody. And you are not prepared to follow that up with a bottle to their head, a pool stick to the head, some sort of cutlery to the head or neck. You have just asked for an ass whooping. You signed up to get fucked up. Coach Lick said you got to throw those big 20 peso coins. Those 20 peso coins are heavy. <laughs> you might bruise. <laughs> Bad lefty. Bad lefty might have won comment of the day. To quote Gandhi, to be the scene you want to be the scene you want to see on the news. Jeez. <laughs> 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 
Bloom said pocket sand will work. Will work you into taking a forever nap. (laughs) Dude, I can't stop laughing. Look. Okay, once again, the response, turn the head away. Okay, I'm a smoker. A lot of people are smokers. Real quick, he's sticking the finger in the face, cigarette in the eye. (laughs) Poor NPC is like, fuck, dude, I did this for 50 bucks, man. (laughs) Every time this guy speaks in my face, he singes more of my nostril hairs. (laughs) Yeah. His breath smells like he's been eating cheese and chasing it with black coffee. Ew. <laughs> His mustache smells. <laughs> so the combination of his mustache and his breath and his clothes. The oh. <laughs> doctor says step two, discombobulate. Good answer. (laughs) Bad breath attack. Like, you know, that man was up all night getting fucked up on a bevy of substances, chasing all of those substances with the king of beers, and then just blowing cigarette smoke and everything else into this poor man's face. And pretend kicking him in the nuts. Like, all for 50 bucks. This was like the 90s. That dude did this for 50 bucks. 50 bucks and like a six pack. And maybe an an eight ball of shitty Coke. Boom. Automatic response. He snapped his head back. His entire body is open. Any strike you want. Okay? Same thing with the change. He's sticking a finger in your face. Right in the eye. <laughs> right in the eye. Again, the eyes are the testicles of the face. He's sticking his finger in your face. You retaliate by going above and beyond and escalating the whole thing. <laughs> Jim might have the comment of the day. Venmo and vaping have left today's youth defense. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine someone just blowing vape smoke in someone's face? <laughs> The eyes are the testicles of the face. Now that is a T.I.R. shirt I'd buy. (laughs) We have to do, we have to have, we have to have a shirt with, uh, with mustache guy. And, and he's just going, the eyes are the testicles of the face. And then he's got a cigarette in his hand or something. Someone, someone make that image so we can make that shirt. The eyes are the testicles of the face. Because that might be the thing that that actually helps us. By the way, it's the holiday season. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing says you love or hate your family like TIR merchandise. (laughs) Oh, God.
So get the angle of pessimism shirt and the eyes of the testicles of the face shirt. That's that's what we need in America right now, right? Mm. Um, all right. So in closing, let's leave on a happy note. And I don't, I, I can't have you guys. I can't do that to y'all, right? I just leave you with the pocket saying, man, can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) But I can leave you with this feel-good tune. We often talk about the early days of rap music, and someone found it. 1974. And this looks like so much. And earlier in the show today, I want to bring it back. Earlier in the show today, we were talking about these labor organizations and how they had regular people. Everybody wasn't a freaking academic. There were people that were illiterate. Um, And they were having fun. It's okay to have fun. And Toussaint had sent me this, like, video about Puffy and Spotify. Or not Puffy. Puffy, Snoop Dogg, and Spotify. And I, I drove all those hours, like, straight. I did that thing where you think you're awake and all of a sudden... Your body just the power goes out in your body. <laughs> you just, mm-hmm. like, I, just, I was like wide awake. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then the power went out. And then I woke up and there was a 90s documentary on about grunge in Seattle. Because it was on YouTube. So it was just like playing. And I was like, oh man, this puffy thing got weird. Um, but watching people in in spaces like this and like in you know maybe a hundred people in a little bitty club somewhere in Seattle. I was like, Oh man, that was such a good time. Like you had to go out to find the good time. Right now, the good time you can find the good time. You can Google it. You can look on YouTube and there's a good time somewhere. There's a concert somewhere. There's a group you like, there's an artist you like and you can see the concert and it's got professional sound, professional video I would say the majority of venues that we go into are set up for professional recording audio and video. If you remember the New York show, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, you want to record it? I mean, they charged you for it. I think they want to charge like $1,000 for it. Excuse me. But I was like, whoa. Every, every venue. It used to be the only big ones. Now it's like even these small couples, 100 seat ones. So... <clears throat> having real experiences is so important and i found this video and i was like this i i was falling asleep i started watching the video and it had me moving <clears throat> did you find yourself moving too when you saw the video too slow? i did <laughs> so enjoy this Thank you guys for hanging out with us. We'll be back Tuesday for the holiday party. Yay! Yay! So enjoy the early days of hip hop. Also, look at how people are dressed. Real big clap! Oh, y'all freeze! One more clap! Bust out, please!
Please.